Our reading today will be from Acts chapter 16, verse 11, onwards to uh, chapter 17, verse 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, which we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, and fasten their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly 
uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason also received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come as soon as possible, they departed. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts. Help us to receive your word. May we read your word diligently, hearing and confirming the truth before us. Holy Spirit, take this word preached this morning and help us to respond with trust and obedience. Holy Spirit, work in, the hearts this, in our hearts this morning who, of those who are still wrestling with knowing and trusting the gospel. And Lord Jesus, help me to speak clearly from your word as I ought. For we ask this all in your beautiful saving name. Amen. Coriander, Hamilton, the musical, and coffee. These three things that I absolutely love. But I know that not everyone loves them. I know that some people look at coriander as anathema, a cursed herb that is better finally sliced and placed into the bin rather than on food. I know that not everyone has seen the musical Hamilton, and not everyone who has seen it enjoyed it. 
And I know that for some people, coffee isn't one of the greatest, most aromatic, and most soul-satisfying hot beverages in the world. Here's my confession. I understand that some people don't like these things, but I don't get it. (laughs) I don't get why these objectively wonderful things are not universally loved. Now, on the flip side, durian and Brussels sprouts and blue cheese, I personally think these are gross, and I don't get why people love them. Now, all right, in this room, there are people who hate coriander and love durian, and we know a lot of this is very subjective. Like, personal tastes, tastes are very personal in that way. And we also know that these things, they're, they're relatively superficial, right? They aren't life and death things. They aren't important in the grand scheme of things. But then you have something like the gospel. The good news that God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ has come, he has paid the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. When it comes to reactions to the gospel, the gospel which is not about subjective taste but is this objectively incredibly good news, why are there such opposing reactions? Some people hear the gospel, maybe over weeks or months or even years, and it becomes to them the aroma of life. It is the best, the sweetest thing they've ever heard, and they receive it and accept it joyfully. And yet some or others will hear the same gospel, maybe once or over weeks or months, maybe even years as they go to church, but for them, it becomes the aroma of death. It is gross. It is putrid. They, they, want, they don't want anything to do with it. Why is that? Why are there such diametrically opposed reactions to the gospel? Now, this isn't just a theoretical question that I'm kicking around this morning. Remember the author of Acts, Luke. He is writing to a young believer to help strengthen his faith. And while it's not overtly asked in this passage, a fair question may have popped up at this point in the reading of the book of Acts. Like, the gospel is so great, it's so good, but why does it seem to bring about such contrasting responses? If the gospel is so persuasive and good... Why aren't more people convinced to follow Jesus? Have you ever thought through that question? So we're not talking something subjective and superficial like the taste of food or a musical play. We're talking about the gospel, something that is objectively good news. Why do some people respond with joy and others oppose it? And that's what we're looking at today. Right, our passage lays down a, a rather roller coaster ride of good and bad responses all through it. And to make it easier on the outline, you may have noticed I've grouped the responses into kind of bad responses and good responses. And so as we look at these contrasting responses to the gospel, let's pay close attention to what Luke is telling us, how he explains the different responses. Well, we start in verse 16. Right? Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke have made their way down to Philippi. Now, remember from last week, Paul wanted to head north, and then he wanted to head south, but the Holy Spirit said no, and so he ended up in Troas in the middle, and now he's gone a bit further north, and he's ended up in Philippi, and that's where we begin. Now, as they're heading down, uh, this group of four men are heading down to the local river, 
Right? They meet this poor slave girl who is demon-possessed from verse 16. Right? Uh, we read in verse 16 that she, this poor girl has a spirit of divination. Right? Through her demonic power, she is able to tell the future, for, predict the future. And this has actually bought her owners a whole heap of money. This demonic fortune-telling business was good for them. Now, she starts to follow Paul and the crew around, saying in verse 17, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And when you look at verse 17, all those words are true. And while it sounds like free advertising, it's coming from the wrong sort of advertiser. Like the demon might be saying what is true, but Paul knows that if he, she keeps up with, her, with this, then her well-known reputation will taint their message. Kind of imagine it like this. Imagine walking into Woolworths, the fresh food people, right? And you walk into the fresh food section because that's how they've designed it so that your eyes get captured by all the greenery. And standing right there is a McDonald's employee. Whoop. Well, what happened there? There we go. Now imagine standing right there as a McDonald's employee, right? Loudly telling you how healthy these, these fruit and vegetables are for you. After a while, that's not a good look. So she keeps at it for a few days, and finally Paul has had enough. He turns to her in verse 18, and he commands her directly, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And then, boom, she is healed of the demon possession. A fantastic miracle, a clear miracle done in the name of Jesus Christ. But then look how the owners respond in verse 19 to 21. First notice in verse 19, that as soon as the owners see that the girl, uh, they know, uh, sorry, as soon as the owners see their girl, they know that their hope of gain was gone. Their financial cash cow has dried up. This girl, who is now in her right mind and probably listening to Paul, is of no more use for them. So they grab Paul and Silas and they drag them before the rulers, but notice what their accusation is in verse 20 to 21. Read with me again verse 20 to 21. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. So you notice here that the accusation is that Paul and Silas are preaching something illegal, that they were telling people to do things that would have made Rome angry. Notice that their accusation does not reflect their motives. Their voiced objections are covering their true heart intentions. They saw Paul had ruined their financial income, so Paul was going to pay. Now, this isn't the only time we'll see objections hiding true motives, but it does help us understand why some people object strongly to the gospel. There may be a deeper hidden motive than what we see from the outside. See, they accuse Paul and Silas of being disruptive and potentially causing an insurrection, an open rebellion against Rome. That's, why they were, that's what they were outwardly saying, but inwardly they were angry that their slave girl had been healed. Imagine that. Imagine being so self-focused that the healing of this girl doesn't fill you with joy. This girl who had been enslaved to this demon possession against her will. And now she's healed, but it doesn't fill you with joy. It just makes you miserable that you've lost money. That's sometimes what happens. 
Outward objections hide inner motives. Anyway, back to the story. Come back to the story with me, and we see that Paul and Silas have no opportunity to answer to the magistrates. Instead, a big crowd forms, and then in verse 22 to 24, he and Silas are beaten up by the crowd. Now, there's a lot of detail in these verses, but don't gloss over it too quickly. Paul and Silas were attacked. Their garments are torn off. They were beaten with thick rods designed to inflict pain. They were beaten with many blows, thrown into prison, and their feet put into stocks to prevent them from moving. They were brutally beaten up. What happens is an incredible injustice. And in charge of this miscarriage were the magistrates. They were leading men of the city who were to judge these sorts of matters. But instead of judging the matter rightly, it looks like they are caught up with the crowd, swept up in the moment. It reminds me of that famous quote from the movie Men in Black. A person is smart, people are dumb. An individual can respond calmly and rationally and thoughtfully, but a crowd can sweep that rational thought in a way, away in a wave of emotion and panic. And as a small side note, I think this is the reason why some people don't respond positively to the gospel, because they're caught up in the crowd, or the crowd at large are swaying their opinion. The opinion of the masses is more important to them. Everyone else's opinions matter more in the moment. Now, back in verse 35, they eventually decide that Paul and Silas have had enough and they want to let them go, Actually, what's happening here is they're, they're doing this on the sly. They're, 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 doing, they're being a bit sneaky about this. Uh, this kind of explains why in verse 37, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship. He, Paul was a Jew, but it's likely that his, either his father or his grandfather was able to gain Roman citizenship. So that actually meant that Paul was a Roman citizen as well. And he would have carried around a little wax tablet, like, kind of like a little passport, identifying his citizenship. Now, the magistrates, when he pulls this out, they know they are in trouble. They know that it was illegal to beat up a Roman citizen like the way they had allowed and to not give them a fair trial, and Paul knows this as well. And Paul knows that if he simply let him and Silas, if they simply let him and Silas go without a proper apology or pardon, that it would instantly put a cloud of doubt over his ministry in Philippi. Think of it this way. Imagine if early in the week on Monday night, you heard through the gossip channels that Richard and I, Pastor Richard and I, had been arrested in my home for dealing drugs. Right? We're on the news. You're watching the news and you see us thrown into jail. And the gossip makes its way all around church and then suddenly we just turn up to church on Sunday. What would that look like? It'd be a bit dodgy, right? You'd be wondering, are we out on bail? Are we waiting trial or something? So if that happened on Monday, but what, what, but what if on Friday morning the police held a press conference and they openly apologised for arresting Richard and I and their drugs turned out to be a bowl of Mentos mints, right? And that no charges were being pressed and they were sorry for the wrongful arrest, right? Everything would now be clear. That's what Paul is doing. That's why he's pulling out his Roman passport. It starts flipping, flashing it around. He's calling out the magistrates for their mistake and to make sure everyone in Philippi knows that they have done nothing wrong. And so acting in fear, the magistrates openly apologize, 
They asked him to leave the city publicly. The reputations of Paul and Silas are cleared. This is a clear signal to Luke's readers that the Christian faith was not here to upend society or the world. It's not here to create drama or disturb the peace. Paul and his friends were doing nothing wrong in evangelizing. So innocent of any wrong, they head to Thessalonica. Again, Paul heads to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He starts to preach. He's reasoning from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ and that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. And then notice in verse 5, chapter 17, verse 5, notice that the Jews were jealous. Or jealous of what? We'll take a look at back at chapter 17, verse 4. And some of the Jews were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Not a few of the leading women is another way of saying that a whole bunch of wealthy women in the city were persuaded that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior, and decided to follow Paul instead of the Jews. Wealthy women would often give a lot of financial support. Many of the synagogues relied on these wealthy women. And here was Paul preaching Jesus and changing these women's minds and hearts to follow Jesus. And so they would switch from supporting the synagogue to supporting Paul. Losing the attention and patronage of these women got the Jews jealous. But then notice again the content of their accusation in verse 6 and 7. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king... Jesus. Now, what are the, what's the accusation here saying? It's true, right? There is another king, another supreme ruler, whose name is Jesus. True. But having Jesus as king doesn't automatically mean that followers of Jesus are openly rebellious. Jesus does turn the world upside down, but his followers are not in the business of destroying society. But the main thing to notice again with this objection is that you see this outward objection, outward accusation, hiding an inner motive. Jealousy is what drove the Jews, even to follow Paul and Silas down to Berea in a few moments, in in the latter half of 17, and, and cause trouble there. Jealousy drove them, but their words are calculated to hurt Paul and hide their true motives. See, twice we've seen in this passage, right? The slave girl's owners were driven by greed, but accused Paul of illegal activity. The Jews were driven by jealousy, but accusing Paul of teaching open rebellion against Caesar. So come back to that original question from the start. Why do some people hear the gospel and object so strongly to it? Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, It's because their outward objections are hiding a deeper, hidden motive. As an example of this, a few years ago, I got pulled into a three-way conversation. One of the new guys at church invited me onto the university campus to meet his non-Christian friend and have a chat about some of his objections to the faith. Now, most of his objections centered around the whole science versus faith debate, and the conversation was quite sharp at some point, and To be honest, I have to admit, I'm not a scientist, and some of the stuff that he was saying and arguing for was just going way over my head. But as we were chatting, I learned that he had come and grown up in a Christian home, and he was presently dating a non-Christian girlfriend. And he knew that if he became a Christian, he would have to break up with her. 
and he didn't want to. So his outward objections of science and faith seem to be hiding his inner motivation of not wanting to break up with his non-Christian girlfriend. I read another similar story recently of a woman who was attending church regularly, but kept raising objections about the Bible and its trustworthiness. It turns out, though, that she had a deeply broken relationship with her mother. It was very painful, and she knew that if she became a Christian, she would have to forgive her mother, and she cursed the thought. Sometimes, unless that inner motivation is dealt with, answering objections will be of limited value. What we can see in these bad responses is that these outer objections are fueled by these hidden motives. And look, that might mean for us today that we're encouraged in our evangelism to keep pushing a little deeper. If you're, especially when you hear consistent objections from particular people, to maybe keep trying to get to the heart behind the questioning. And that might also mean that if you're here with us and you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you have a lot of objections, can I ask what might be beneath all of that? What hurt or what fear or what love might be underneath all of that? So I'd love to be able to speak with you about the objections you have, but also to show you how Jesus heals those hurts, calms those fears, and satisfies more fully than anything this world can. Well, we spent a bit of time looking at the not-so-great responses, uh, but the majority of the passage is actually filled with good responses. And again, we've got to ask the question, why? Why do some people respond well? And we'll see from here that some people respond to the gospel well because God is at work, because the gospel is persuasive, and because it's clear in the Scriptures. So we're back at the top of our passage again. We're jumping around a little bit. Um, and we're going to start with Lydia. We're back in Philippi in Greece, and Paul and company are on the Sabbath, but there's no synagogue, so they have to head to a place of prayer, and that place, a uh, place where some God-fearers are gathered together, and it turns out it's the local riverside. Uh, they, there they meet this woman named Lydia, and we find out in verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14, that she's a seller of purple goods, which is an expensive dyed fabric, and so that would have actually given her a good business and made her wealthy. We also find out that she was a worshipper of God, right? someone who probably had some knowledge of God through some Jewish contact, but because there's no synagogue in Philippi, she would meet with other God-fearers by the river for prayer. Then at the end of verse 14, we have this beautiful line. Read it with me again from verse 14. Right at the end there. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why do some people respond positively to the gospel? And part of the answer is that God is at work in their hearts, opening them up. Instead of closed hearts and minds, God opens them to be receptive and to hear. I'm sure you've had this before. It's that wonderful moment that as you're speaking and sharing, you see the person in front of you entirely engaged paying close attention, hanging on every word. It's a marvelous experience. And it's clear in that moment that God is at work in that person, drawing that person closer to Jesus. If you haven't experienced that, I hope and pray that you will 
and that you do. So it's no surprise that she hears, she receives, and she is baptized along with her whole household. And remarkably, she becomes Asian. She urges Paul and the rest to stay with her, showing hospitality. But at the end of verse 15, there's this really funny note. She prevailed upon us, right? Like a very insistent Asian auntie, they can't say no. Right? It would be very rude to say no to her, so they don't. So if there's one thing that this Lydia story tells us is that we need to trust and pray for God to be at work. Preparing people to open their hearts and hear the gospel, whether it be that our neighbor that we've been chatting to for years or the relative that we think is so far and distant, or maybe a friend at school that we've gotten to know, pray that God would be at work in them. Don't just pray that they would be receptive. Remember, we're interacting and relating with people who are spiritually dead. I often marvel at what doctors can do. I've got heaps of doctors here at church, and when I hear your stories, I, I marvel at that, at the knowledge uh, that you have and the ability to work out the physical problems that are before you. It's astonishing work, but every doctor hits the same limit. You cannot bring dead people back to life. But that is not a problem for God. Those who are spiritually dead need life breathed into them. And God is powerful enough to do it, and loving enough to do it, and merciful and gracious enough to do it. That is the God that we pray to, that we plead with Him to keep doing that work, to keep giving new life, to keep opening hearts, to keep drawing people to Him so that when we speak, we can see the lights turn on and joyful life begin. Keep praying for that. Don't give up. Now, after they meet Lydia, we saw them see, the, uh, we see them exercise the demon-possessed girl. They get dragged before the magistrates and they get thrown into prison. But despite the beating, despite the pain, at about midnight, Paul and Silas are happily praying and singing away. Right? We see them doing this in verse 25. I would actually argue it's joyful singing, partly because joy when suffering for Christ is a common theme that runs through the book of Acts, and also because the word singing there always relates to joyful singing. Now, this scene takes a strange turn in verse 26 when a great earthquake hits, right? Not only does the ground shake, but it manages to swing open all the prison doors and break everyone's shackles, right? This is no minor random earthquake like the one that hit Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. This is a God-ordained moment. And so the prison doors are open, the bonds are broken. What do the prisoners do? You think they'd run and flee, right? That's what the jailer expects. So in verse 27, he's woken up by the shaking. He runs to check the prison, only to see all the doors open. That's it, he thinks. I'm finished. Now, to understand why he's about to commit suicide, you've got to remember that Roman guards were responsible for their prisoners on penalty of death. If the prisoners escaped, then the Roman guards would forfeit their own lives. And so he draws his sword, he points it to his chest, and just as he is about to thrust, he hears Paul cry out, Stop! Don't harm yourself. We're all here. A mix of relief and confusion and astonishment hits the guard. He calls for some lights. He runs in. He finds all the prisoners right there in front of him. And he finds Paul and Silas. And he drops to his knees. He's been hearing Paul and Silas preaching and praying and singing in the prison. 
It made him fall asleep, but now he knows that Jesus is king. And so he politely asks in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The earthquake has not only shaken him from his sleep, but he's also shaken him to realize he needs help. God not only shook the ground and unshackled the prisoners, but shook this prison guard and unshackled his heart from self-reliance. And then in verse 32, Paul and Silas respond. They speak the word of the Lord to him. The miracle alone is not enough to convert the man. But the gospel must also be heard. And evidently, he sends to bring his entire family to hear the preaching as well. And again in verse 33, you see the conversion of the man. And we, we see a sort of nice play of words in verse 33. The soldier washes the wounds of Paul and Silas as he is washed in the waters of baptism. And again, we have another picture of hospitality as the guard welcomes them into his home. He sets food before them. And the scene ends in verse 34. Everyone rejoicing. With everyone rejoicing because he had believed in God. Had believed is another way of saying that he, the guard trusted Jesus with his life. He trusted Jesus for his forgiveness. He trusted Jesus was raised to life and now reigns as king. Why do some people respond gladly to the gospel? A miracle certainly helped move the jailer. So should we be praying for earthquakes and miracles like that? I guess there's nothing stopping you from doing that, I guess. But, but the miracle only moves the man to ask the question. Ultimately, it's the spoken word of the Lord that convinces him and his household to get baptized. And the miracle only moves the man because Paul and Silas were already witnessing, praying aloud, singing songs, no doubt, speaking with the other prisoners and guards. Now, sometimes it takes something fantastic to move people to the point of wanting to hear. Sometimes don't we just wish, oh, it'd be so good if a miracle happened right now and it would just be so convincing. But don't forget the groundwork that has already been laid. Asking for a miracle isn't going to do any good if we do not see a Christian speaking and living out the gospel in their lives. Uh, Two more brief scenes as we finish up. Uh, And in these final scenes, there's something for both the believer and the non-believer here among us. Uh, The first brief scene you can see in chapter 17, verse 4, and chapter 17, verse 12. So by chapter 17, Paul, Silas, and Timothy have now made their way down to Thessalonica. As per his custom, he heads to the synagogue on the Sabbath morning. He starts explaining and proving that Jesus was a long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And on top of that, he sets out proving that Christ, that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, we don't get all the details of how he did that explanation. But what we do find is that the arguments were persuasive. Have a look again at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few leading women. So here in Thessalonica, we've got some of the Jews in the synagogue are persuaded, as well as a large group of God-fearing Greeks, as well as many wealthy leading women. And the similar thing happens in verse 12 in Berea. Have a look at chapter 17, verse 12. Many of them therefore believe, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. All right? Why do some people believe when they hear the gospel? It's because Paul's preaching and teaching was persuasive. 
Persuasive is not only the, in, in the, not only in the mind, but also in the heart. Believable, not only intellectually convincing, but also emotionally satisfying. Over the past few weeks, we've been running the life course here at church. It's been super encouraging. We had 25 non-believers regularly coming each week for six, six weeks to hear about the gospel and to ask questions. And it was super encouraging to see Jordan uh, putting in all the effort with his talks and, and week after week. And one of the most enjoyable highlights for me was helping to answer some of the questions that came up. And in the weeks leading up to that course, I was reading books and listening to a lot of different podcasts. And I was encouraged and reminded again that all of these books and podcasts gave really robust and compelling answers to some of life's difficult questions. Now, all of this to say that the gospel is not just a matter of blind faith and no evidence. That's a silly myth. There are reasonable arguments to support the faith. You just have to be open to hearing and engaging with them. And particularly here, if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, are you willing to engage and give a fair hearing to the Christian faith? Or will you just let your assumptions and judgments rule the day? Now, if you are a believer, I want you to notice the type of people who are persuaded by the gospel here. Right? There's Jews, there's many devout Greeks, and again, not a few leading women. Three times in this passage, Luke points out that wealthy women were a part of the early church. So very quickly, you've got to dispel the myth that Christianity was mainly a poor person's religion in the early church. Right? There were wealthy people who were converted leading women who would become patrons for the early church. Paul would count on a few of them throughout his missions to full financial support as well. But sometimes I, wonder, sometimes I wonder if we think that the wealthy in our world are too far out of reach for the gospel. How do you speak with people who are so financially and materially comfortable in life that they think they don't need anything? Well, the conversion of these leading women is encouraging. The gospel really is for everyone. So let's never stop believing that and praying for that to happen. The final scene has Paul and Silas heading down to Berea. Okay. Uh, Paul and Silas heading, down, heading west off to Berea. Again, familiar, a familiar scene of entering the synagogue and seeking to persuade the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But unlike in Thessalonica... Here, the Jews were more noble. That is to say, they were more open-minded. They were fair and thoughtful in their listening and engagement. Right? As Paul preached, it was like a fire had been lit in their hearts, and they eagerly opened up their scriptures and examined what was there to see if it made sense, to see if what Paul said was really true. So they opened the Old Testament, read through it, eagerly looking for the phrases and the verses that Paul was no doubt quoting. Why do some people respond to the gospel well? Because when they hear it, they find out more, and they find out more, and they read the Bible for themselves to see if it makes sense. Quite often I get asked by non-believers about the Bible, specifically why 
there are just so many different interpretations of the Bible, and how can we know which interpretation is the right one? And I always come back and ask, have you read the Bible for yourself? To which the most common answer is no. So here's my invitation. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if, you, if you've ever asked yourself about all those different interpretations of the Bible, let me invite you to read the Bible with us. All right, we're about to start a new course called More to Life. We just finished life, and now there's more to life, right? Where you'll be able to read through the Gospel of Mark for yourself with a whole bunch of other people who are exploring and also asking questions. So let me invite you to read the Bible and find out more about this Jesus guy that we keep banging on about. You've got nothing to lose. You'll meet great people, you'll get a free meal, and you get to find out more about Jesus. But what you shouldn't do, what you shouldn't do is just sit there with that question thinking nobody has an answer to it. Let me invite you to read the Bible with us. And let me just say, if it's crucial for the non-believer to read the Bible, then how much more important is it for the followers of Jesus to read the Bible? We keep saying that it is so important at this very moment that I am speaking in the pulpit that you have a Bible open in front of you because you need to check what is being said here from the pulpit. And I do think it would be better for your spiritual health to have a physical Bible for your reading, for your memorization, for your understanding of the context. You've got all of this real estate compared to a quarter of that on your screen. A physical Bible is going to be so much better for you. Now, I'm not saying delete the app on your phone, but I'm saying that maybe we should be using that for emergencies rather than regularly. See, the Bereans responded to the preaching of God's Word by pouring over these words to make sure it made sense. All the more we should be encouraged to do the same. Uh, We started this morning by looking at the bad responses to the gospel, right? Human unbelief and objections often hiding other motives. But at the end here, we've also seen that people will respond well to the gospel if God is at work in them. People will respond well because the gospel is persuasive and because it is clear from the scriptures. So, let's pray that God would continue to be at work and persuade hearts to trust Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this is a big passage with a lot happening in it. We pray that you'll help us to see all the different responses to the gospel, the ways in which human sinfulness acts, but also the way in which you act for good. So we pray, Father, do it again. Do it again and again in people's lives to open their hearts, to hear your word and respond well. Help us to have confidence in that, that when we speak the gospel, as we continue sharing the gospel into this world, help us to have confidence that you will be at work preparing people in advance for us to speak to. Help us to remain faithful to that task to the end. And we ask for this all for your glory and the building of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.